Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits, people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today our guest is Genevieve. Uh, she's been a police substance drug user and is in the early stages of her recovery. Jen has attended some online meetings of Smart Recovery and her recovery approach adopts a lot of their valuable skills and teachings. So welcome to the show, Jen. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. I'm Bill and today I'm co-presenting with Anne. So hi, Anne. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Hi, hi Jen. Hi, Anne. So, Jen, we usually talk about your journey and the sort of things that influenced you when you were growing up, you know, about family. When you were introduced to problematic behaviours, in your case, you know, drug stuff, and how you found recovery. But first, how about giving us an insight into uh, your early and teenage years? Sure. First, I guess I'll just introduce I'm 27 years old and uh, I suffer from polysubstance use uh, misuse. Since about the age of 13, so at the time I didn't realise that I was coping with substances, but now that looking back on it, I can see the pattern and the familiar pattern is that I've been using one substance to the next over about 15 years or so. So my childhood was great and I had really loving parents that would do anything for me still to this day. So I've got two sisters and a mum and dad and everything from the outside was perfect. My dad worked hard and got a well-paying job my mum was a teacher they were educated three children however there was a bit there was lots of dysfunction in terms of the dynamics as I started to get a bit older so my mum and dad never really had a stable relationship a lot of that was probably to do with I mean I wouldn't say this back in the day when I was 14 you know there was so much anger and frustration whereas now I can kind of just see them as humans with a flawed just like the rest of us. Uh, so I can see it now how, why maybe they did some of the things that they did or they acted or didn't act. So my dad had a lot of anger and frustration and mood disorders undiagnosed. And he was quite emotionally um, abusive towards my mom. And as we got older, also towards my sister, and there was a lot of instability and it was like treading on eggshells. And so that was a pattern. My mom didn't want to leave. She wanted to keep us safe. But as we got older and started to rebel, that dysfunction carried on to us as me and my two older sisters. And so I think that instability and those highs and lows in the house that is also met with so much love because it would be one minute, it would be, oh, there's arguments and everything. And the next minute, everything's provided. We're going on holidays. We're it's a sorry, you know, we've got money, we're going educated, doing dance classes, so privileged, but behind the scenes, it was just that dynamic was just so unstable. And I kind of relate that to the highs and lows of drugs now. And I think maybe my uh, underlying mental health issues, 
So I was a dancer for 15 years um, and I went to a performing arts school, Newtown High School of Performing Arts in Sydney. But I also went to Brent Street, which is an external academy. And so my whole structure in life was around 15 years of dancing, ballet, jazz, tap, hip hop, contemporary. So there was a lot of structure there. But then when I guess I started to hit puberty, move into high school, I was overcome with riddling OCD and anxiety. And so this is before I touched any drug. So I found the darkest spots of my mind was when I was, you know, 12 years old, did not know how to address anxiety and OCD, did not know anything about that and battled it for about two years on and off. But was very, you know, it was popular at school, wasn't really working hard, but had lots of friends, distracted, was always a bit naughty. But it wasn't that I wasn't interested. It was just that I was too consumed in my own mind to really pay attention as to, you know, I was battling internal anxiety that I couldn't really listen to science class. I was just like, why am I learning about this when my brain is doing crazy things? So I guess I started to go away with self-soothing behaviours such as boys, you know, just being interested in boys and that sort of, not knowingly at the time, smoking weed, um, drinking, but it was normal, you know, at that time you're 14, it's kind of high school, you're being naughty. So it didn't really sound the alarm bells. And then moving into high school, uh, later years, it got into ecstasy. And because uh, I'm also from a music background, I've always loved music and, you know, volunteered at FBI radio and community radio station in um, Sydney. And also DJ and produce music so it was always part of my scene to get into the music scene but that was also there was drug culture around that and it, you know but I loved ecstasy. I, I, I loved the time I loved ecstasy but then it you know that ran out and then I moved towards cocaine but at the same sorry I've already said so much but that's kind of my intro to drugs was from mental health issues my family which is a bit broken but not broken enough for it to be what felt like you know a valuable reason to be that distress whereas now I'm like okay that was a bit traumatic and then I guess it just escalated which I'll go into more when when you want me to but yeah I guess it just escalated from okay yes this is drug tasting this is experimentation it's just ecstasy it's dance music and then it slowly declined over the past few years yeah Okay, well, just to quickly take you back. Sure. Uh, so you said you had two sisters. So what was your relationship like with them? So I've got two older sisters, very, very good relationship. I mean, me and my middle sister, who's three years, we're three years apart. So me, middle sister, three years apart, and then older sister, so six years older than me. Me and my middle sister, we shared a room for a really long time. So we were really close. I don't know if this was like an Italian thing because my mom's Italian and my dad's Australian, but I feel like it was culturally, it was a very Italian thing to kind of share a room for a little bit too long or just be so close with your sister. Like it was so normal for my mom to sleep in the kitchen on a fold out bed and then Lorna would be in the other room. And I ended up doing that once. I ended up being on the fold out bed with my mom in my bed and my sister. And it was just normal because I guess migrating from post-war you know they're always just crammed and didn't matter where you slept so me and my sister had a very close relationship and we were like twins and my older sister as well uh very close but there was something special with me and my middle sister because I think we spent that extra time together and I guess we have our differences for sure so my older sister back then was quite erratic and emotionally unstable and my middle sister was quite the 
you know, the perfectionist, the stable one. And then I was kind of the mix of in between. But my older sister kind of carried on from what my dad suffered from. And my dad's mental health was primarily shaped from his childhood where he suffered incredibly. He grew up in Kalgoorlie and, you know, abandonment issues. There was assault that happened towards him. And I guess he carried that on with him. And I don't know if he dealt with it properly. So maybe that's why all that dysfunction came out while we were growing up. And that obviously affects the kids. So my older sister was quite unstable and would act out on us to the same way that my dad would. So it was kind of mimicking. So even though we had a great relationship, me and my sister, I say back then because there's been a bit of an evolution. She's a bit of a grieving process. She has she didn't die, but it felt like she died because she gradually declined and has been diagnosed with schizophrenia and autism now. So that's a trauma and grief in itself. But back when we were really little, it was all good between the sisters and I. It was more just adolescence when we were allowed to kind of rebel and then my sister's mental health was left untreated and that's kind of my dynamics with. Yeah. So talking about your your sisters, did they influence you in your behaviours? You know, had they gone through the similar things before you got there? Yes, they had. Well, they went to a private school and I went to, I was the first one to break that chain of the cycle. Um, they went to an all-girls private school while I went to a co-ed public school, Newtown. So I think they didn't have as much exposure to, well, you know, different genders. They didn't have as much exposure to maybe diverse groups of people, whereas I did. And I think I deviated towards those that just had something going on apart from everything being perfect, whereas my, my sister's it was, it was harder to rebel in that sort of setting, but they still drank and they still experimented with, you know, smoking weed and ecstasy. But I mean, my older sister, yeah, she definitely was, did have some addiction issues. Now she's clean and sober, but not to the extent I have suffered from it. But yeah, so they, they had similar exposures, but it didn't derail them. Yeah, in the way that it's derailed me. Right. Okay. <laughs> You know, having those issues in sort of secondary and later secondary school, Mm. so how did that affect your education? I would say that everything comes back to just those highs and the lows, just inconsistencies with almost everything that I did. So if I put in the work and I tried hard, I would ace it. But then I would burn out very quickly. And I've been diagnosed with ADHD since, and I take stimulant medication for that. But when I was in high school, I didn't. I wasn't on any medication. So I would kind of ride those highs and lows. And I think everyone just saw it as, oh, she's not interested. Or, But when I wanted to, you know, it was almost like when they said, oh, you can't do this. Um, you can't do advanced math for HSE. That would make me be like, you know what, I'll prove to you. And I would knuckle down and ace it and then be top of the class. But then once I had that achievement, I would just settle back. So it's the motivation and the consistency that I've always struggled with. So it wasn't until... After high school, when I got the results and I got uh, in the 70s, low 70s for my ATAR. Um, and then it kind of had a turnaround where I had just like a bit of a breakdown, but also an epiphany, you know, just next stage of life where I was like, I do want to work hard and I do want to try. And I'm very stubborn. So if I don't want to do something, if I'm not interested in it, there's no convincing me. So if I have no interest, which in high school, I just didn't have the interest. I didn't, wasn't studious. I didn't want to sit down. It's simple as that. And then I left school, I went to university, did an arts degree, but then my mental health declined. So I stopped and then I got into DJing and that 
really changed everything for me. Um, I applied for a DJ competition and got through to the finals. And I think that sense of working on music, which I loved and always had a passion for, and then also getting that sense of achievement, which I didn't receive in high school, really just, yeah, that changed my life. And then obviously it doesn't last forever because then I, you know, just stopped working so hard at that. But I then went on to study at UNSW Art and Design and I completed my honours in media art. But it took me six years to do a like three-year degree. <laughs> <laughs> so you're creative, but obviously you're using drugs during that time. Yeah. So do you want to talk about what your drug use was like and how that, how that impacted your life and your relationships? Whilst I was at post-high school and at university, I really settled into a, like an amazing crowd. It was it was very art schooly, left of center. Everyone was provoking. It was everyone was studious, you know. And I really formed a new sort of friendship circle. Even though I had my other friendship circles, I was thriving and I worked really hard and I enjoyed going there. So I wasn't really abusing drugs at the time. That was. I hadn't tried uh, methamphetamine by then. I hadn't tried any of the harder drugs, um, heroin. It was it was still all very masked because it was in a line with either, at that stage I was diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed with uh, Ritalin or Concerta. So, and I was skeptical. I didn't want to take it every day. But on the weekends, you know, it was kind of common for friends to be like, oh, we don't, we can't afford drugs. Let's just have some of you know, concerta. And that was very common to do that. And it, it's bad. It's, it's happening everywhere. And it's very dangerous. I was under wraps because I was focused. I had a purpose. I was studying. So that was my main thing. And I guess for me, it's when I'm left doing nothing or when I don't have a purpose. That's when it really starts to unravel. So nothing was really, the alarm bells weren't ringing. And then I finished my degree. It was still just drinking on the weekends, a little bit of weed. And I tried cocaine, but it it, it wasn't anything like as dangerous as what was to come. So then it wasn't until I finished my my last year of honours, and this is probably three years ago. So it was my last year, final year of honours, and in the background, I had a lot going on with the family. So my mum, as I was saying before, is very, you know, I am Australian and I was born here, but I very much do identify with that Italian culture that my mum and my nonna, I'm in, I'm in my nonna's house right now, she's passed, but they've been here since they migrated. And my mum looked after her when she had a stroke. She looked after her, my great aunt who lived here as well, who had schizophrenia. And then my nonna um, lived in this household. And then when my aunt, my mum's sister got sick with stage four cancer, she moved in here and my mum started looking after her mum and her aunt, her nonna, my nonna, and then my auntie, it was like another mum with cancer. So there were three family members pretty much dying in this house and no questions asked, you look after your family. So I was coming here, helping out a few times a week. That stress was piling on. My oldest sister was starting to unravel in terms of her mental health. Then they all died in the same year, like a couple of months apart from each other. And my aunt quite rapidly, which was absolutely, I still think I'm processing and grieving that. So there was a lot of grief and, and trauma and so close to them that I, well, I was with my great aunt in a hospital. I was the only one when she died and watched her, which was actually a beautiful experience in a way. But so this is all going on in the background of when I was doing my final year of university. And I kind of just at that point had enough of family. I was just like, you know what? 
and that was me detaching from them was just focusing on my uni still going out with oh, a few toxic relationships but I was moved I was out of home and I was just like you know what screw you family like I'm just I need enough I need a break like I've looked after everyone I have, growing up was just dysfunctional like it's just been too much I need to live my life and then after they all passed and I graduated then my sister started to rapidly d- decline and well I got a call in the middle of studying and um my mum was fearful for either her or my sister's life and had to call the ambulance on my sister and yeah she was sectioned and in hospital for months and months and has only just started to recover now and she uh because my middle sister had a family kids she was always very she's very busy with them so the responsibility kind of fell on me to help and then I guess I finished university went traveling came back had nothing to do and then started working in a pub and that's when everything went downhill Okay, well, we might, we, we might stop there and have a short break and have some music and some announcements. first song was by Gabriella Cohen and she sang for Angelico Dreams and that song was courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Victorian Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous or Vicky Bar are a group of alcoholics who are young in recovery and want to assist newly recovering alcoholics to stay sober. 
They do this by creating events throughout the year that strive to provide a safe place to go during high-risk times of the year. For example, around grand finals and New Year's Eve. A Vicky Park convention is held each year to help alcoholics stay sober by providing a full day of meetings and speakers, fun and fellowship. This year's Vicky Park event will be held on Saturday the 9th of October 2021 via Zoom. The event will be free and anyone can join any time. Check out the updated Vikipar website for the full program and links to the meeting on the day. The website is vikipar.org. Alanon family groups also participate in Vikipar Convention to help families and friends of alcoholics cope with the effects of living with someone else who has a drinking problem. From a private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears Being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm, on 3CR. You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. And today I'm talking with Jen and we're talking about her journey and recovery from drug abuse. So, Jen, before the break, we were talking about you needing to have a bit of a break from your family because it was all getting too much and, I guess, imploding a bit on you. And you also talked about a difficult relationship with your, your sister because of her mental health issues, difficult relationship with your mum because she was caring for your fa- uh, her family members and feeling there was a bit of responsibility falling on you, you know, finishing uni. So why do you think you needed to break out? What was the thing that was constraining you most? I felt trapped in a sense and I didn't have my indiv- a sense of individuality or independence. I think that was really um, impeding on me. I felt like I was tied down to these, this family, which was crumbling at that stage. And so my distractions were, you know, study and it's 2019. I was, I was using drugs on the side um, as a coping mechanism, but it wasn't until then that, um, you know, university education was removed and I had to face myself with nothing to do, that then my main form of soothing and escaping and I guess everything was so bottled down. So I had really um, suppressed any sort of emotion and I was numb to the point where I thought everything was fine. So back then someone could have been like, oh, is your family going through a lot? I would just reply with, oh yeah, it's tough, but you know, there was no emotional, it was just, yep, it's, you know, that's how I dealt with everything. I'm strong, fine, everything on the outside. So then my family and friends all started to really, really worry when I I didn't have those distraction methods of education and a healthy community and um, friendship group around me that kept me on track. So it wasn't until I started working in a pub environment with cocaine so I use the term of all these drugs as if everyone knows them, but I guess 
a lot of people don't. So ecstasy, what I said before, is like um, MDMA and it's very common at festivals and um, party drugs and it's euphoric feeling high and um, cocaine is a stimulant which I think is more on your dopamine receptors and so when I was at the pub it was very much on the job cocaine and alcohol you know to the point where the people that owned the pub were doing that and you know you'd go upstairs to the office so that was just the norm and so I kind of was exposed to this party environment but it was also exposed to people which were doing much harder drugs such as methamphetamine which is also a stimulant and it is one of the most potent stimulants because it releases dopamine at such a high rate that it's would say your endorphins or your dopamine receptors if you're having sex it's maybe this say oh, I can't even do the math but a little bit is released if you're having sex or engaging in a happy activity you get that reward system of oh I'm enjoying this like you know that reward whereas if you have methamphetamine it's that sensation times a million so once I was exposed to that then that's when things started to spiral because I lost contact with my good friends my friends that I had for a while and was just completely absent-minded and bendering or so being awake for days putting myself in very risky situations and the people that I was hanging out with weren't really my close friends we just had a common sense of abusing drugs and escaping together so yeah that's that's a, an issue for young women in drugs and alcohol is the potential to be abused so was that an issue for you did you consciously think about those things oh yeah yeah definitely sometimes through money sometimes through the drug and sometimes just through my my personality was maybe taken advantage of because I was so easily swayed and yeah I, I guess I didn't have my values I wasn't I wasn't living a life in line with my values and I was already just looking to spiral and so I guess other people would prey on that to take me to go down that rabbit hole together and also yeah take advantage of me in my in the weakest vulnerable times yeah yeah was that a concern for you I'm saying was that a, a stimulus to stop or not no, not at the time. No. And I also think that that sort of, I have an unhealthy attachment style to relationships. So like I think another toxic, not substance, but obviously in terms of addiction, it's, it's not just with alcohol and drugs, but people know behavioral addictions like sex, gambling and food and to people and relationships. And I think I also have a what I need to work on I also have a unhealthy attachment to 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 men so that played a a role in it so if I saw these males and they were using those harder drugs it was almost like that that was the recipe for disaster that was just like how could I survive in that and it's two of my addictions like calling for me even though it had really bad negative repercussions and my self-esteem and the shame and I still struggle now you know I still have to catch myself if I see my the last relapse I had was with a a guy and it was with heroin which I'd never done before so I went down to a new rabbit hole and very scary one and it was also because of my attachment to unhealthy relationships and toxicity so you know in recovery it's for me personally I'm just learning new things new addictions in a way yeah so do you want to talk about 
I guess, where your drug use took you. What was the sort of thing, like the typical day for you in your drug use? For me, it was with other people to start with. So, and it was out of the house and it would just stay out of the house and not come home for five days. And so it was a party setting where some of the more commonly known drugs like cocaine and alcohol and ketamine were accepted. But then I would find people in that crowd where I could also indulge in some of the newer drugs for me anyway at that time. So a year and a half ago. So GHB, which is um, well, used to be referred to as liquid ecstasy, but it's a central nervous system depressant. So it slows your nervous system down. Also methamphetamine, which is a stimulant. And so those were my two new drugs that really had a negative impact. And I could, they, and also they're not socially accepted at all. And I guess a lot of people in Sydney or my, I'm sure all over the world, but I'm just going to talk about from where I'm from, picture methamphetamine users as junkies who are, teeth are falling out, who are, you know, not educated from, you know, just lower socioeconomic it's just the way that that it's covered in the media and I guess that stigma around it just really portrayed that drug to only apply to certain people so that when I started using it there was a lot of shame of like oh this is this is so bad but it also prevented me from coming out and wanting to seek help about it and or tell my friends and when I did tell my friends it was horrible because then I was felt constantly judged and criticized every step of the way it was all of a sudden oh, you can do cocaine and I can do cocaine every single day of the week, even though you're not sleeping and it's affecting your mental health, maybe, or you're not getting a job. But then the minute I turned to a drug that was not approved, you know, in in society, then this shifted, everything shifted. And I guess that's, um, so yeah, so for a normal time, I was trying to hide it with, on the weekends around friends. And then I thought, oh, okay, and this is the different stages of recovery. After that, stopped working. I go, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to party outside anymore with friends. I will just stay at home and do my music. And I'm going to experiment with just using drugs to help my creativity enhance that. And then that very quickly, you know, I just was lying to myself. I was in denial, but it was the first stage of trying to change. So then it very quickly changed to me using at home secretly and staying up all night and making music and smoking methamphetamine and having GHB and it's a very scary very scary drug GHB I think the moment that everything changed was mid 2019 in March where I'd been awake for four days and because I wasn't aware of the certain effects of mixing that drug with other drugs other central nervous system depressants like um, benzos and alcohol as well accidentally overdosed and woke up in ICU to my mum who got a call from the police at 2am in the morning and that was the first time my mum and dad ever kind of really knew the extent as to which my drug and that didn't stop me that didn't stop me nearly overdosing I was not ready for change then the next week I was doing it again yeah can I just ask there how did people know that you'd overdosed what what was the situation I was with uh, my partner at the time and a few friends and one thing about that drug is you have to measure how much you take and it's a very small amount 
too much. If you have a little bit too much or too little, too little is obviously better than too much. But if you have a bit too much, it's deadly. You know, you can really die. Like, like people die from that drug. So it's, if you're going to do it, that's safe, you know, harm minimization. But I didn't dose myself. My friend did. And um, you looks like you're sleeping and you just lower your heart. You can't maybe not feel a heart rate and you're not conscious. You're not responding. I, they were all aware of that. And my partner was aware that that could happen because they, this is my partner who was also part of the pub. And he also had friends who had actually died from that drug. So they were aware of what to look out for. But I apparently, I don't remember. I just remember lying down and 16 hours later. So apparently the ambulance came and they were doing CPR, my partner, and I wasn't responsive to certain things. And then, yeah, it was in ICU, woke up, had to be intubated. So that's when you know, all the tubes are stuck down. Um, and that took me a really long time to process. And I think I'm still processing that because it was a near-death experience. And it wasn't until I saw someone almost overdose that it just triggered everything for me where I was like that's what I put people through that's what I put my family through and I wasn't ready to stop yet and so I was just met with so much confusion because my family was like you can't do this drug ever again you can't do drugs you can't go out you know so so much criticism but I wasn't at that point of change it because I was still in pain and suffering but not realizing so yeah I just continued doing it and how long ago was that that was March 2019 um, and then I also overdosed on New Year's Day this year. Um, I woke up in an ambulance at my friend's house so I didn't actually have to go to the hospital. It was at the end of last year. So the end of last year was when I was using at home. So this is part post all that going out and having that overdose and also other scary situations like falling asleep in a bathtub, taking a benzodiazepam, which is also a central nervous system depressant. People have prescribed Valium. Um, and I am prescribed Valium for many reasons, but it's also easy to abuse. So I just kept putting my I just kept putting myself in all these situations where I woke up, I'd flooded a bath in an apartment because I'd mixed drugs. And and so that's when I had that first moment of like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Like this is this is if I, this is stupid, like this is too risky. And that's when I thought, okay, I'll do it at home. But then that still had its obvious issues. I was losing more weight. I'm already naturally skinny. Everyone already wanted me to go to rehab, but it wasn't until the end of last year that I, oh, actually I signed myself up to go to a rehab in Sydney called The Hills. So I had to go on private health, which took two months. So there was like a two month waiting period. So I kind of set that up on the back burner. And then I guess during that time, the key moment, which I was like, what the hell, this is not just you know, fun on the side of doing it was Christmas at the end of last year where I had my family over, my beautiful little nephews who I love more than anything in this world. And I would go to my room and have some G. And that was the first, that was when I was like, this is a problem. This is not okay anymore. And then also weighing myself and I was like 45 and I was like, thank God I'm going to rehab. And then overdosing again on New Year's Day at my friend's house who had been nothing but this one friend, Chelsea, she'd been nothing but supportive and had my back while I had, I'd fractured all my other relationships, fractured them. I was so alone and in isolation already. And then on top of that, losing friends. And then I'd isolate more with my use. So it was so, it was so hard and it's so suffocating. And she had my back and I guess waking up in her house, having that happen to me, 
and I was trying so hard to be safe. You know, I was doing all the right things, measuring it, timing it, not drinking alcohol. So even when you think that it's you're doing it safe, it's just too, it was too risky. And um, I just was crying and was so apologetic because I felt so bad that I, I had done that to them. And I guess that was also another kind of step in realizing that I was starting to change because of that guilt that I had for them and, and not wanting to put them in that and was like, thank God I'm going to rehab in a few weeks. And that was, I went to first time I went to rehab was January this year. Okay. All right. Of course, we might take another short break there.
That last song was by Ainsley Wills and the Old Sea Barricade, and it was called Detour, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Jen and we're talking about drug use and recovery. Uh, so Jen, usually people don't go to rehab unless there's some sort of some sort of issue or family or friends or someone pushes them into it. So you mentioned you had an overdose in, in March 2019. And the family were a bit worried. So did they try and put pressure on you to change? Yeah, so understandably they were sick to the stomach, worried, you know, distraught. And my mum was, the way that she reacts to everything is very, you know, no holding back. It's like, almost like me, it's very confrontational, like, you, but also unattainable in her approach to someone suffering with addiction who's not even aware that they're suffering so she was just like you, you need to stop everything we need to get you somewhere blah, blah 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 but I wasn't at that stage yet whereas my dad wanted to have the approach of not pushing me away because I was very anytime that my friends or family were telling me you got to do something you got to change your behavior I was just like nothing's wrong I'm fine um I couldn't see that I was spiraling and you know was numb and they were kept putting forward ideas of what how to handle things and in my mind I was kind of like you don't know anything about this so why am I going to listen to you and so I had a few interventions so friends you know they in hindsight you know people were just trying their best to deal with something that they didn't understand and that I didn't understand but really sometimes it made the matter more harmful rather than helpful so I found it much more harmful when other people would try to fix me without my permission as well so I had some interventions where my friends went, you know, to my family whilst I was in the middle of a bender doing drugs and they rocked up unannounced and kind of just tried to tell me to come home or do something and I just shut down and was, you know, awful and crying and just wanted to escape even more. They didn't realise that that would have that cause and effect. So I think my dad really 
thought about it and realized that if he doesn't want to push me away, if he tries to tell me, that's just going to push me away. So he tried to hold me in close and hear what I was going through, but I wasn't really quite there yet. But at the same time, he was also like just completely distraught and in so much pain from it that, you know, he had his ups and downs of dealing with it. I would, uh, told my ex that he would come down and cut his balls off if like, he gave me any more anything. So, you know, from one rational experience to the next, completely anger outburst, which is, you know, in a way justified. Um, so, look, yeah, I had many people tell me to go to rehab, but I was, as I said earlier on, I'm someone that if, unless I make that realisation, and it could be from other people, but I have to come to that realisation myself. And the thing that actually got me to rehab was, Speaking to two friends who didn't know each other, happened to meet each other in a rehab called Northside in um, North Sydney. And they called me while they were in there because they realised the mutual connection. And they were telling me about rehab and they were like, it's really awful what you're going through. And, um, you know, rehab isn't what you think. Like you come in here and it's people that understand you. They have the same experience as you. They get you. And it wasn't until I heard the voice from two people that were going through the same thing as me that I then booked myself in and did my research into rehab because I couldn't hear it from my friends who were doing other drugs on the weekend, but because it wasn't the drug of choice or because they hadn't understood what grief was like watching your sister turn into someone else and, you know, grieving that, you know, they just didn't understand those experiences and hearing them be like, this is what you need to do. I found that really didn't work for me and it was more harmful so it wasn't until two people that shared also that addiction that I was like okay I'll I'll give it a go and then my mum printed out you know all this information on rehabs and hotlines and I spoke with so the stimulant services in Darlinghurst so they deal with people suffering from stimulant misuse or abuse whether that's cocaine or methamphetamine and it's a free service and you get go in, you get a few counselling sessions for free. And it was just someone to check in on maybe once a week, you'd just call and there was no judgment. And I found that really almost like a counselling session, but therapeutic because there was nothing, no, they weren't judging me. Whereas if I went to my friends or family, I would lie. Oh, the lies with friends and families. But it was to, in a way I was trying to protect myself, but then, you know, so I, I guess towards the end of 2019, hearing from friends that were also in rehab, getting a few services the, 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 the change was gradual and then I finally got locked into a rehab and then rehab was one of the best things that's ever happened to me and I, I miss it I want to go back like even though I've been sober for the longest I think I keep my three months free from meth and heroin for three months now so that's something I should be celebrating today but I still just want to go back into rehab because of the community it was just so good to be around people that that you can relate to and don't feel judged and recover together. Usually in rehab, they try and introduce you to 12th step stuff. So did that happen? Uh, so the rehab that I went to was not based on the 12 steps. The Hills in Kellyville, which is in the Hills district, it was all I could get into really. I was kind of like rushing last minute and they took an approach with a few different kind of methodologies and recovery styles and approaches. So the program was set that you enter for three weeks. You can't leave within the first week. And then the second, like next two weeks, you can, if you want to, but obviously they want you to stay at the three weeks and it's an abstinence base, obviously 
um, rehab, except I kind of didn't do that the first time I went to that rehab. So that's a different story. But they structure it so that there's different classes throughout the day. So it's group therapy. You do either DBT, CBT together. There's an addictions class. And then they also get you to, and you can also choose whether you want to do some horticulture. There's meditation, there's mindfulness, there was Tai Chi. And so you really get that mix of mind and body and using both of those to either distract or heal. And it was kind of an open setting where we would sit around and the coordinator would talk about addiction, how, what it is, how it is, and help us kind of realize we're actually suffering. It's not that, you know, we're doing all these bad things on, on purpose or intentionally. It's that the people suffering from addiction are trying to cope with something but just in a harmful way rather than a helpful way. Yeah. So you mentioned the first time you went in, it wasn't abstinence-based. So do you want to talk about how that worked? You in for a story? I'll make it short. Yeah. (laughs) I was fine for the first week. And then it was the first time I got given leave. I'm going to talk a little bit about triggers because at the first week, some people would say, wouldn't want you to mention the drug, the word of their drug choice because it would trigger them. But some of the coordinators were like, well, it's the environment. You're going to have to get used to it. You're going to have to ride through those cravings and urges. But I had someone message me, a, a dealer when I was in there who had owed me something and I had my first night of leave and he finally responded. And then Anyway, I left. I tried to meet up with him. It was just like, it was just an impulse. It was just like, there's no thinking through it. I'm at rehab. It was just like, oh, boom. Like, I'm just going to, it was like an experiment. I wasn't really ready for rehab. I was giving it a go, but I didn't. Anyway, I couldn't get onto him, went to someone else, ended up having G, methamphetamine and bottles of pills to smuggle back in. I didn't get back until 7 a.m. the next day. So at rehab, I was allowed to leave from 4 till 8 p.m. And I left at four and didn't come home until 8 a.m. the next morning in a velour tracksuit, like just off my head. And because I wasn't a drinker, I have to, so my way of also coping is laughing at myself because it's a form of, I don't know, I laugh or I cry. So sometimes I cry, sometimes I laugh. But, you know, I thought I was in some like gangster movie wearing some, you know, like glasses with a tracksuit on, walking through the door, like, Things smuggled on me and um, because they only breathalyze people I don't drink so I was clean and then I realized myself it came to my psychiatrist in them who is amazing and I had a really good rapport I just decided to be honest with him I was like it was the first time where I was using that I called my mom and said look um, I've relapsed I know I have to go back to rehab but I want to be honest with you and that was really a turning point because even though I had lapsed I was honest about it and I was telling my mom about it. And I went back to the hospital. And when I was there, I told my psychiatrist and I said, I'm going to be completely honest. Like I did this and I feel like, and I did, I had remorse. I started to come down and I felt terrible. I was like, why would I bring drugs back into a rehab where people are trying to get clean? Like, it was just like, I couldn't believe that I had done that. And so I told him, look, I did that. You, you can kick me out. Oh, I don't want to be kicked out. I want to stay in here. You can take away my leave. And so under the conditions, he took away my leave and I stayed in there. But that wasn't the end of that. But we can maybe leave that for another time. And it was a strict policy, but it's kind of flexible, I guess, in terms of other rehabs. I think people have in mind a rehab 
I don't know. I think people have really scary or think of it as you can't do anything or there's no freedom. And I'm not talking in terms of substance, but um, it, it was quite, you know, flexible. It wasn't like you can't have caffeine or sugar and you're not allowed to exercise. I know there, there were some rehabs where that was the. It's not a health retreat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you get fed and you don't have to worry about cooking and you don't have to worry about anything. It's just like food, classes, exercise, help other people, community. And I met some of the best people I'd ever, ever met in there. So, yeah. So what happened when you got out? So, okay. So the towards the end of that stay, I got mixed up in a bad crowd at that rehab. So, because I extended my stay, I, there was a man in there who I was like, oh, curious about. And long story short, I actually used again towards, because my psychiatrist said to me, you got to be abstinent. You can't, you have no leave. Don't do any drugs in here. And I said to him, well, I can't, if I've got no leave. And he goes, well, you never know. I've had people Uber drugs in here before. And I was like, did you just say that to give me an idea of how to do it? And that's exactly, he literally set, he set me up. I ended up doing that, but it was actually a very scary experience towards the end because I was preyed upon by this guy in terms of using me for money, really pressuring me in there to do just things. I was just all of a sudden it was too much and it was only two days of using inside the rehab and the fire alarm just happened to go off and I'd asked them if I could leave because I felt threat- threatened by this guy whether emotionally and it was just so toxic and that's what they always warn you of don't get too close to anyone in rehab have your guard up and boundaries which is so important but that's one thing that I didn't have boundaries so anyway it ended up with me absconding but intentionally because I couldn't get leave the fire alarm went off and my fight or flight instincts kicked in and I just ran away I just ran out as soon as could we got leave because there was a fire alarm so we were in the garage and I just sprinted got an uber and went to my dealer's house so that's probably not the best either but that was actually very traumatic because I started getting bullied and then I had a month off with family And then I said, okay, I'm going to do rehab right this next time around. I was allowed back in and I did the program and I was sober and abstinent. Then decided to live in the Blue Mountains in Sydney with my dad. That was my recovery goal. And everything was going well. And then I relapsed three months ago. But since then I've remained. So I've had one lapse and a relapse since that second stay in rehab. And this is the longest stint now that I've been um, clean from my problematic drugs. So I know that maybe in the a, a 12 step, it's, you know, is it true that if you're, if you say that you're clean, it's kind of from everything or what's, I, it might differ to. Uh, yeah, basically a drug's a drug's a drug. Yeah. So it's clean from whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I guess um, I've been a lot of research and a lot of listening to and other people in recovery is for me personally, I find it, it's like an alternative my problematic drugs I'm free from, but there's other drugs that I'm either required to be on because of medication, which in a way are could be abused, but I'm not. And also I can have a glass of wine every now and then and that doesn't, that's not problematic. I can put that down. Whereas if it's my drugs of choice in front of me, I don't have any self-control. So that's how I, yeah. if that helps frame it for listeners, yeah. Yeah, I think you've just explained that the difference between the 12th step abstinence approach yeah. and the other approaches, which is if you don't fall into the category where you've got to stop everything, then mm. you're in this, this middle ground. But I'm going to say there are FedEx in Recovery Anonymous as a group and they, they've obviously got to eat, but yeah, they avoid sugar, flour, 
and excess. Yeah. And so they're still going to eat. So I, I think you're describing that sort of approach, given that yeah. holy drug, yeah, you're in that situation where you've got to have some, but some are problematic. For sure. And I, I guess it's just a very much, it is like a process of trial and error. It's like, well, for me personally, and I guess what my rehab, um, for me, that works is is trial and error and seeing what does. Like, you've got to be real with yourself at the same time. But I really learned a lot from that rehab where it was like, you've got to know where you're at. Because one of the first things I said to them was, I want to get better and I want to be free from this pain. But that switch hasn't flicked yet where I'm like, I'm never going to touch anything again. And I was like, what is that? And she was like, you've got to accept that. And like, you go into radical acceptance. And she's like, accept that that's where you're at. Otherwise you're going to start beating yourself up about that on top of everything else. So I think it's just about being real with yourself. Where am I at? I might not like have that flick switch now, but why is that? And then you get to that and then you can start. So it's just so much to unpack. There's so many layers and it's hard. It's bloody hard work. And you, you can't do it alone and I think I really struggled to receive help I hate I don't like asking for help you know everything's fine fine I'll do it on my own so I think just accepting that help and that it takes time and that there's give yourself some compassion and pat on the back along the way otherwise you just it spirals again yeah now you mentioned outside this interview that you had some exposure to smart recovery so do you want to talk about that influence and what that has done for you? Okay, so, okay, well, I haven't had that much to do in terms of attending online meetings. It was spoken about to me a lot through the stimulant services hotline. So they work, I think, with smart recovery groups. So they were telling me there's these groups you can go to, but I hadn't actually attended one yet. And then the first pandemic, March 2020, happened here. And I think... And that was actually the first time I sought help on my own. I joined an online smart recovery meeting at home. No one had told me to. I was just like, I think I want to see what this is about. But because it was online and I joined a group that happened to be a lot of, A, everyone was male, a lot older and just alcoholics. I found like I couldn't relate. So I probably got off to a bad start with meetings, even though everything about smart recovery I heard and and loved, it was just a difficult time to get involved. With it, but I mean, a lot of their online resources, I continue to work through their worksheets today, and I'm still looking forward to going to their meetings in person. It's just that I couldn't relate to that online meeting. And I guess since the pandemic, it's just really disrupted face to face support, which I think I really need. Yeah, that's just me personally. So, whilst I've only been to the one online one, and I was like, okay, that's not really for me. So, when I moved to the mountains, I wanted to go to the all women's smart recovery meeting up there. And I signed up and had the counselor um, interview and I wasn't allowed to go to the group yet. She wanted to talk to me first and then we went into lockdown. So it's like, <laughs> I'm almost going. Yeah. And I guess now that I'm in lockdown and I've been sober, I kind of get a bit complacent. I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm fine. But it, it is something in the back of my head that I want to start getting. I just got to find the right group and I guess find yeah, the right meetings, you know, because just because that one meeting was full of men that were alcoholics, I couldn't relate to. I know that there's many other ones um, and they have so much information online. It's really good so far from what I've experienced with them, but there's more to come, hopefully. Yeah. Is there any reason why you haven't tried something like Narcotics Anonymous or not? 
I guess the only reason at the moment, because, you know, my recovery has kind of only been this this year where I've been trying to work towards it. And the first couple of months I was in lockdown, but in a rehab. <laughs> and then after rehab, it's been real like a lockdown lockdown. So I haven't been able to attend. And I guess just, I'm a little bit anti online meetings, but I'm definitely going to try and NA, especially and an AA, I've actually had many friends of mine suggest that even though I'm, you know, poly substance abuser to do some AA meetings online because, you know, they say that they're a lot, some of them have said they're a lot more approachable. You know, it's just different, different people have different experiences with them, but I'm definitely, when things open up and it's face-to-face, I will be trying out everything. NA and an AA meeting and smart recovery when it's back to face-to-face. So yeah, there's, there's been no real, I guess it's just timing has been the biggest. Yeah. Biggest issue. Yeah. Yeah. So there's one last question. If there's anything you, you would have done differently, had you known more about recovery earlier on, if you had have had that call from your friends in, in rehab earlier, do you think you were ready at that point? Would have been ready earlier? I, I don't know if I would have been ready earlier, but I would, I think there are things that I've learned in recovery that I can apply to people that aren't suffering from addiction that would have helped me before I got the help. So that's just the way that we treat ourselves internally. And a lot of it, you know, coincides with mental health issues, which I also suffer from. So what I learned in the rehab was, yeah, that radical acceptance of, of accepting where you're at. Yeah. In, in hindsight, I could have been kinder to myself and practice those understanding not just you know letting myself get away with it but realizing or accepting where I was at and accepting that I was struggling and maybe I wasn't ready to accept that I had an issue but accept that it was I had a valid reason for wanting to soothe myself even though it was in a harmful way I was hurting and it was for a real reason and I guess I tried to just push that away so I guess some of the things that I'd learned in yeah in my recovery was a lot to do with just how you treat yourself and being as honest with yourself as as possible and people respond better when you're honest with them I mean it takes guts at first especially if you're not used to it and you've got to kind of build up that resilience over time and the more that you're educated on it as a drug user or an alcohol user the more you can rebut what people say like my mum will say something and I'll come back to her and be like well that's actually a harmful way of this is radical acceptance you know I'll try doing all the lingo on her because I know a little bit more confident now whereas before I was just lost so I really think that some of those um psychological aspects to just even just treating yourself can be applied at any stage of the recovery or even if you're still suffering and using yep okay if anybody listening would like to find out more about smart recovery australia you can visit smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details of their meetings and contact info or you can call them directly on 02-9373-5100. To find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can phone them in Australia on 1300 or go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of local AA meetings. If you'd like to find out more about Narcotics Anonymous, you can call them on 1300-652-820 at any time or you can go online at navic.net.au uh, well that's about all we've got time for today so i'd like to thank genevieve for joining us and sharing her recovery experience with us thanks for jen thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure thank you
I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling, and food. Thanks for listening to the Living Free Show. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.